Welcome to this week's edition of Good Books Radio. Audiobooks.com is the chief underwriter for Good Books Radio, which is produced by UTRGB Media Services for Rio Grande Valley Public Radio. And now here's your host, David Hinojosa. Welcome to another edition of Good Books Radio. This is your host, David Hinojosa. My guest today is Clive Thompson. He is a longtime contributor and writer for the New York Times Magazine and a columnist for Wired. He is the author of Smarter Than You Think, How Technology is Changing Out Minds for the Better. And he is here to talk to us about his new book, Coders, The Making of a New Tribe and the Remaking of the World. Clive, welcome to the program. Good to be here. Okay, so first, uh, allow me to congratulate you on your new book. I really enjoyed reading your book and learning about the history of coders, the profile of the coders over the years, and about uh, the evolution of uh, coders. So, in celebration of, uh, of uh, March being a Women's History Month, I'd like to start by making mention of the fact that some of the first coders were women. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about this? Sure. Um it often comes as a surprise to people who think of coders today as being predominantly um, men. But in the very early days of coding, and I'm talking about the, the kind of the, the late 50s and early 60s, mm-hmm. um, there was very much a wide door open and a lot of women walked in. Um, that, was, that was partly because of a couple reasons. One is that in the early days of computers, um, Coding wasn't yet a high status and sort of um, elite thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of the people that were building computers were much more interested in the challenges of making the hardware, like actually getting these great big, you know, computers that were the size of a living room, how to get them to work. They thought, you know, issuing the instructions, programming them was sort of secondary, even kind of menial. So... They were essentially willing to hire anyone who said, raised their hand and said, I want to do this. Um, there was also no, there was no background, right? There was no courses to take on programming. Uh, there was no degrees. So everyone was at the same level, which is to say, you know, if they were, if they were kind of logically minded and good at solving puzzles, mm-hmm. they could get hired. Uh, one of the women I talked to, fascinating woman, Mary Allen Wilkies, mm-hmm. she, uh, she was a student studying philosophy in college. She originally wanted to become a trial lawyer. She, she sort of loved the idea of arguing cases in front of the judge. Um, but, you know, she was told by all her mentors that, you know, look, you know, law is just not going to accept female trial lawyers. It was still a really sexist time of, uh, of America. So instead, she graduated. And on the day she graduated, she told her parents, you're going to drive me to MIT. Mm-hmm. And they did. And she walked into the, the employment office and said, do you need any computer programmers? She'd never done any coding. Mm-hmm. They knew that. They hired her anyway because <laughs> she had a good logical mind. And she went on to become one of the towering pioneers building one of the first ever uh, personal computers. So that is how women became early pioneers in coding. Right. And how long was coding considered uh, a woman's job? Because that later it changed. But how, for how many yeah, years yeah. was this uh, dominant? I would say well into the 60s. Uh, you talk to women who worked back then and they would say, yeah, you'd walk into the, you know, the, the, the programming area and it was like it was majority women, at least half women. Things started to change in the 70s, uh, partly because coding became much more financially lucrative, right? You had companies that were realizing, you know, holy smokes, uh, you know, a lot of our business is now hinging upon being able to write code that can um, analyze data, do the payroll, 
you know, do sales projections. So they started wanting to hire people that could ascend to management, that could become vice presidents. Right. And back in the 70s, that meant hiring guys. You were not going to hire a female coder with the idea that she would become vice president because it was still pretty sexist. They did not want women in charge of men. Uh, even weird things like this, like we forget, but, you know, back in the 70s, you know, women were not really allowed to be on the premises of a company after mm -hmm. dinner time. Uh, it was considered too scandalous. You, know, you have a single woman working alongside a married guy. You can't have that. Right. So, you know, this is a period when coding is becoming important. Mm -hmm. Coders are burning the midnight oil, working on the hard problems late at night, and the women are not allowed to be there. Even if they're really talented, they, you know, they can't be there. If they, if they had a kid, by law, in some states, they literally had to quit. You know, you're in Massachusetts, you have a, you have a, you have a baby, sorry, you can't have this job. So all these, all these sort of things conspired to start to push these really talented pioneers out of coding. So by the time the 80s, 90s roll around, you know, only a small minority of the people working in coding are women. Right, and and well, now nowadays there's there's a shift back to uh, yep, women going right. into computer science. So, what do you mm -hmm. think has affected this change? Uh, that's a great question. Why are more women uh, deciding to go study computer science and want to get into coding? Because that's true; those numbers are real. Right. There's been a big uptick in the last five years. Uh, the reasons why I think are that coding is no longer um, something that is mysterious or seemingly remote from everyday life. You know, back in the 80s, if you wanted to be a coder, you had to be someone who had some exposure to computers uh, and knew what it was because, you know, software was kind of mysterious and weird. You know, it meant you were going to go work in a dark underbelly of an office, you know, managing databases, mm -hmm. you know, for a bank. These days, you get young people, they've grown up using software all day long to accomplish central tasks in their everyday lives and their social lives. You know, they're sending photos on Instagram. They are sending Snapchats. They are texting. Uh, they're sending emojis back and forth. They're writing in Google Docs. They right. get it. You know, they know now that coding is central to the way things get done. And if you want to, if you want to have an impact on the world, code's not a bad way to do it. So I think that is part of what has started to um, create a high level of interest uh, for a lot of women that, you know, 20 years ago might have taken a peek at that industry and said, well, this is just a bunch of guys and they're kind of acerbic and they don't really want women around, so I'm, I'm steering clear. They, they, now, they now realize that it's a, it's a high leverage point for affecting the world. They want him. Right. And do you see it increasing with time or do you think this is just a fad? Uh, that, that's, a, that's a million dollar question, right? Um, mm -hmm. The answer is I don't know. Uh, there, I, I I don't think it's a fad for, for one main reason, which is that uh, certainly in the U.S., industry needs a lot more warm bodies in chairs coding. Like it's projected that there could be as many as a million unfulfilled coding jobs in the next couple of years, right? Mm -hmm. And so they cannot afford to turn away people that want to do this. And that's why I think there will be, um, there will be a lot more women and a lot more, uh, you know, sort of uh, – um, uh, other groups that have, you know, sort of not had opportunities in the past, you know, African-Americans, Latinos, really, really very few of them in coding. There is just so much more of a need for people that I think the industry is going to have trouble turning anyone away who wants to do it. So I think it's going to keep on growing. Okay. Now, uh, for a long time, what used to be the profile of the coder, aside from being male? 
what yeah. were traits and personalities that society and academia expected from coders or yeah. you know they just yeah. profiled coders in yeah, a certain yeah. way yeah what are they like well you know in some respects uh the some of the personality types and and and, and the traits have been fairly consistent over the years. Like, right. you know, Mary Ellen, that woman I mentioned, Mary Ellen Wilkie's back in 1960. You know, I sort of asked her, I said, so, you know, what, what made you good at doing this, right? And she's like, well, you know, um, when you're a programmer, you have to think very logically, you know, mm -hmm. because you are issuing instructions to a, com to a computer. Try you're trying to give it a recipe of things to get some task done. Uh, do this then do this. And if this happens, then do that. If this doesn't happen, do that. It's very, very meticulous work where you have to take big problems, break them into little problems. Right. Constant puzzle solving. She had that puzzle solving mind. She'd studied philosophy. You, you really got to think that way. Mm -hmm. She says the other thing, and this is very true up until today, is that coders are extremely meticulous because if you get one semicolon in the wrong place, you can have 10,000 lines of code and they just stop working right. and crashes, right? Mm -hmm. So it is very intolerant of error, right? You know, mm -hmm. and that is still true up until today. People that are drawn to this, they love that puzzle solving and they love the, the, the getting in there and just being incredibly accurate and precise. Right. Which, which sort of leads me to, to, to a weird one that I didn't expect, right? Mm -hmm. They are incredibly good at enduring frustration and failure. Because the thing about coding is because it's so easy to make mistakes, a lot of the time, like well north of 90% of the time when someone is coding, it's not working. Like everything is broken and it's their fault. Like it's like they made the mistake and it's not working. And so they are just sitting there and staring at the screen and trying things and tinkering. And it can go on for days or weeks before they finally get it working. So I have never met a group of people that can just sort of pound nails into the floor with their forehead the way the coders can. Uh, it's very, I did, not expect, I did not expect to see that, but it is, it is common across all coders. No one gets very far doing this if they cannot endure an awful lot of failure. Right. Now, um, uh, based on that, what are programmers? You mentioned programmers in your book, and I just want to see if you can yeah. help us define that. So programmers... It's it's a it's a portmanteau, bro and programmer, right? right. So this is like a this is a, a type of coder that really started to emerge. Uh, I would say about ten years ago, around the time of the financial collapse. Okay. So what was happening with the financial collapse? Well, you know, before then, if you were sort of a bro from a frat at a major school and you wanted to make a million dollars quickly in your twenties, and you were smart, you know, mm -hmm. you went to Wall Street and you joined a hedge fund and you sort of crushed it and you didn't care much about society. You were just in there to make a buck and you did it. You became really rich really quickly yeah. after that. That was what things were like in the nineties and the early aughts in 2008, that door slammed shut. Okay. The financial industry collapsed and a lot of those jobs went away and they never came back. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you had a whole generation of these bros who, we're like, okay, well, where can I go and make a ton of money quickly uh, without really caring about how I do it? Uh, and they're smart enough, you know, they're smart enough. So they realized, all right, it's software. You know, they could see all the social networks growing. They could see millions of dollars being dangled by venture capitalists. And they started showing up at Stanford and places like that. And they would cheerfully admit to the professor, right, like, I don't care about coding. I'm not interested in this. I'm just here to learn enough to make money. Mm -hmm. um, 
so this started to like take the already male culture of coding that was already had a bit of a locker room quality to it sometimes. You know, going as far back as the 80s and 90s, you had these all-male companies where there was, you know, there, you know, it was, you know, typical to have, you know, you know, porn, you know, as a, as a screensaver. Uh, it was typical to sort of make all sorts of weird undercutting remarks about women if they showed up. If, right. they, if they asserted themselves, they were, you know, they were, they were too bitchy. If they didn't assert themselves, you know, well then, you know, why are they here? They should be more, you know, forward thinking. It was really sort of a nightmare. So you take that situation situation uh, and you bring in a bunch of these cocky bros mm -hmm. that think they're king of the world and it really started to tilt into some terribly abusive behavior uh, that we saw at companies like uber uh, that we saw at some really crazy startups uh, and um, and that's sort of that's sort of where the programmer came from it it took an already very male culture and added this sort of this sort of fratty uh, uh, you know the openly much more sexist and misogynist tilt to it Mm -hmm. Now, in contrast, what are 10x coders? Because you also mentioned that in your book. So th is yeah, this a sure. contrast from programmers, or is this, can programmers well, can also know, become 10xers? The, the 10x coder is, is sort of an idea okay. uh, that has been around in the industry since the 60s, really, okay. uh, saying that coding talent is very um, unevenly distributed and and there are some real superstars out there that you need to get on board, right? right? So 10X means someone is 10 times better than someone else. There is a coder that will literally be 10 times more productive than the average code monkey, right? <laughs> and if you want to have a successful company, you need to get these 10X people on board because they're going to do most of your work, right? Mm -hmm. um, that is the idea of the 10X coder. It, it has some truth to it insofar as... Coding is a weird type of building. Um, if I tried to physically build a house, I could not build it 10 times faster than you because one human cannot move the atoms around 10 times faster than someone else with their bare hands. But writing, writing software has more of an insight to it. It is an insight-based business where someone can have one idea, one elegant way of doing things, and if they come up with it, a lot of the work can get done very quickly. It's also a, a sort of mental palace building, so one person can do an awful lot inside their head. And this is where you find, when you look at the stories of a lot of companies, Microsoft, you know, Google, whatever, you know, it really, the early work was really done by just one or two people, you know? Right. Uh, you know, and, and so in one sense, it's true, right? There really, there really are certain coders that, that just are enormously productive. But it is also a mythology that I think gets blown out of proportion okay. because it becomes it becomes a little hand in glove with some of this programmer thing where you get people saying, hey, I'm, I'm a 10X or I'm so amazing, you've got to hire me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like they have something like a temperamental rock star personality where it's like, you know, no one tells me what to do. I'm just going to do this stuff. And, you know, like don't critique my code. Don't tell me it could be better. I'm, I'm perfect. And what you wind up with is sort of a cult of um, – you know, these people who, like, they might write a lot of stuff, but maybe it isn't that good. Or maybe it's kind of hard to understand because it was written really quickly. You know, it gets the job done, but that's not much comfort for a company that has to maintain that code for 10 years. You right. need to write code that's clean that other people can see. So sometimes the 10x thing sort of curdles into, like, this kind of, you know, rock star problem where they're just, they cause more, even though they get things done, they cause more trouble than they're worth. Now, does this uh, have any relation to the fact that uh, 
or the saying that, that that goes coding is poetry uh, the the better you are the more efficient the code is yeah it is definitely true that okay. that code can be written to be very slow and inefficient to do everything in the in, in the most brute force way possible or it can be written to be incredibly elegant and it does things the most efficient way possible and really what you want if you've got a company that's going to have thousands or millions of customers you want the efficient stuff you want the people that can write terse haiku you don't want bloated lines you want stuff that is just beautifully done it also is often easier to read if it's written in that beautiful terse fashion right, right. and so Sometimes, you know, they're, they're, you definitely find people who are just the real masters at writing that way. John Carmack, uh, he is a guy who back in the 90s, if you've ever played the video games from the 90s, um, like Quake or Doom, yes. you have used his code because yes. he single-handedly wrote the code. You know, he's a classic 10x coder. He wrote the code that created those 3D engines for rendering those 3D worlds. Right. And when people go back, he, he actually open sourced that code. He made it so that anyone could download it and look at it line by line. And a lot of coders have looked at it and they've said, oh my goodness, not only is he productive, not only does his code work, but it is just written beautifully. Mm -hmm. You know, it is easy to read. It's easy on the eyes. It's elegant. And so there's something of the efficiency of code and the compactness compact poetry of it that is the mark of an excellent coder. You see. Now, um, coding is something, in many cases, that people teach themselves, and they, uh, they end up in a good job how, uh, and uh, creating significant pieces of, of software or code. Now, how important do you see a formal education to becoming a coder? How much... How important is it to have formal education? Yeah, because, um, I mean, to the fact that some people teach themselves, they don't go to uh, yeah, a computer yeah. science degree, and they end mm -hmm. up making great things in the end. So uh, I'm just sure. trying to put into contrast, like, how important yeah. is it? Yeah. Um, this is a really important question because it actually throws to the, to, to the future of coding, right? Right. You know, uh, how are we going to find all these, you know, million missing coders over the next few years? There isn't enough room in computer science degrees to produce that many people, right? Mm -hmm. um, so they're going to have to be trained some other way. And one way is definitely to go online and sort of just teach yourself. So you ask, can you do it? And the answer is yes, you certainly can. I know many people, I've interviewed many people who were working at their job. You know, they were in marketing, they were in nursing, they were in hospitality, Right. But they, they, they sort of hungered to do something that was creative, that built something. You know, they wanted to be makers in the way that coders are makers. And so they just started on the evenings and weekends looking at online courses, looking at YouTube uh, videos on coding, uh, taking advantage of these websites like Code Academy or Free Code Camp that, that will teach you bit by bit how to do languages like JavaScript. And they did it. You know, after a year or two years, yeah. uh, they had learned enough that they could. They made a portfolio of cool little apps online, and they and they parlayed that into a job. So yes, you can teach yourself to code. There are also routes that people have started going that are not like, not like a four-year college, but a really short, intensive yeah. session. Like boot they're camp, called right? a boot camp. Yeah, yeah. boot camp exactly, uh -huh. where you kind of go for. You sign up and you go nine to five, sometimes more like nine to nine or nine to nine to midnight um, for like three to six months. And they give you just enough grounding 
in how to make things, that you could be hired as sort of a junior coder. You would still have a lot to learn, but you would be, you would be able to be useful to a company, right? And that's another area. That's more expensive. Those, those camps are often like maybe, you know, 12 grand or something like that. Yeah. But it's certainly cheaper than doing four years at a college. These, so these new routes are opening up. And I think, I think a, a lot of uh, attention should be paid to them. And I think um, since the government you know, has a vested interest in making sure this industry grows and people have these opportunities, I think they should be actually focusing on how to, how to make it easier to go these routes, because that is where, that is going to be one of the mechanisms. The self-education, uh, the boot camps, I would put on top of that community colleges. I think that local governments could play a strong role by giving more funding to community colleges to expand their computer science options, because that's another very affordable way in one year or two years or even in a, in a short course of learning to learn a ton more. I myself taught myself a lot of coding in the last four or five years entirely online. You know, I just took online courses and whatnot. And, you know, I didn't do a lot of it. I did, you know, only like, you know, a handful of hours a week. But nonetheless, after a few years, I was able to know enough to start making apps and bits of code that I use in my everyday life. Like I actually use them in my journalism. It's made me a better journalist to be able to do bits of coding. I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, I, I wanted to ask you precisely that. How important do you think coding is in the field of communication or, or journalism? You know, here, here's the real thing about what makes coding valuable. Um, coding, when you learn to code, people say, hey, everyone should learn to code. Well, why should they learn to code? Is it because they're going to quit their job and, you know, become uh, you know, someone making apps in Silicon Valley? Or are they going to become an entrepreneur? I think that's a remote possibility, frankly. Okay. The real reason why it's good to learn some coding is because you have the ability to become more efficient and more effective at whatever your current job is, staying in that job, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, let's say you are in, you know, medicine or you're in nursing, you are in hospitality, you are in sales, you're in marketing, you're a journalist like me. Um, you can do an awful lot with just a little bit of coding, like not, not even like making some sort of weird app. I mean, a lot of my code are just these 12 or 13 or 14 lines that sort of automate it something I'm doing that's really slow or really onerous and doing it automatically so it happens sort of on a schedule, like I've got a little, a little robotic servant helping me out with my work. This, to me, is really where a lot of people would find a lot of pleasure and a lot of value in coding because they could say, oh, yeah, I'm going to stay in my job, but I'm suddenly going to become better at it. And you know, that can also have consequences for your pay and your salary and your prestige because you can start to become known as someone inside your organization who's able to automate and able to optimize things. And you can do it for yourself and you can do it for other people. Um, and you can become much more valuable and, and vault upwards in pay. So this, to me, is one of the good reasons to learn to code. Right. And also, you know, there's shifts and in, in, in types of jobs. For example, I remember reading the... Uh the story about the um, miners in Kentucky and yep. how, uh, could you tell us a little bit more about this? I found that fascinating. Yeah. Okay. So this, this really is an interesting story. Right. Um, this is, uh, this is about a guy named Rusty Justice and he has been in mining his whole life. In fact, his, his, his family has been in mining for you know some generations, but he saw that the coal industry was, um, 
was 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 really decreasing and shrinking quickly. And he wanted to figure out some other ways because he's a businessman to grow businesses that were going to continue to, you know, to boom, uh, you know, to take the place of the jobs that were vanishing in coal. And he thought about it and, he, you know, he knew that there was a lot of demand for coders and he decided that he was going to start a coding shop uh, in Pikesville, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And what he was going to do is he was going to find some laid off miners and he was going to retrain them. He was going to hire a full-time coder to come in and train them. They would spend, you know, six months learning how to do websites, learning how to do apps on phones. And then he would have a team of people mm-hmm. that he could hire out. He could say to anyone in the world, do you need your, your website made? Do you need an app made? Mm-hmm. I have a team of people that can do it. He would have a web shop. Uh, so, you know, this was his vision. And the question was, would the miners want to do this? Would they want to code? So he, you know, he put out an ad. Uh, they put an ad uh, on the radio, some in like local newspapers saying, you know, you know, do you want to join the coding resolution revolution? Are you a miner? They, mm-hmm. He thought maybe they'd get 50, you know, maybe 50 people who would apply. He got 950 applications wow. because it turns out that miners absolutely are fascinated by this. Mm-hmm. And moreover, they're really good at it, right? Because, you know, and this is what Rusty told me. He's like, mining is already a very high-tech operation. Mm-hmm. You know, these, these miners are sitting you know, in a mine shaft working with incredibly sophisticated technical equipment, having to do problem solving, having to be very patient, um, not moving, being immobile for 12 hours at a time, uh, and having to constantly learn, learn, learn. This is literally exactly what a coder has to do. So they took to it like a fish to water. Uh, they all learned to code really quickly. And uh, and they started doing fantastic work. You can go to it's called it's called uh, BitSource. You can Google it, look at it online. Their work is really terrific. It, it to me it's it's an interesting paradigm of um, of how many opportunities could exist for all sorts of people doing this for a living. Now, do you see this trend growing from people from let's say liberal arts and uh, other who are not classically trained in computer science? Do you see them? more going into coding over the course of time? Or yeah, again, yeah, do you no, think no, this no. is a fad also? I, I think so, because here's the thing. You know, what a lot of people are realizing is that coding, you know, 10 years ago, the idea was, okay, I'm going to make an app and become a millionaire. Right. But now they're realizing that this is just an interesting thing to do that's, that, that's challenging, that gets you to use your mind, uh, that you will enjoy, and that pays a good you know, very good middle class salary, upper middle class salary. Mm-hmm. So people are approaching it, um, you know, with this new orientation. This is this is almost like like a trade, really, like an amazing intellectual trade. And so uh, I do think actually more and more we, we will see people coming out of the liberal arts. That's what I studied myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe, you know, working for a little while, but then realizing that they'd like to sort of shift you know, into this new field, or at least add it on to what they're already doing. Um, I think that's actually going to to be one of the most interesting transitions uh, in the economics and labor market of coding. I completely uh, agree with you. I'm I'm one of those people that believe that coding will be as important, as you mentioned also in your book, it will be as important as reading and, and writing. You know, it's just something that people are going to just have to learn. Well, at least that's my opinion on it. Now, um, what do you want readers to take away from your book? What I'd like for them to take away from my book is, um, is, is uh, an enhanced understanding 
of why the software world looks the way it does, right? You know, mm-hmm. so they can sort of look at the, how software is changing how they do things, how how they shop, how they learn, how they talk about politics, and they can, they can sort of get a sense of oh, I I sort of understand why it was built this way because I understand more about the traits and proclivities of the people that made it, right? You know, yeah. like you know, one of the things I talk about a lot in the book is that coders love efficiency. They love speeding things up, taking yep. something slow and making it faster. And when you look at the world around you, you can see, oh my goodness, that's exactly right. That's what all this code is often doing. You know, Uber, making it faster to order cars in a way that's great for the, the people that hail cars, but not always great for the drivers, right? You know, Facebook, making it faster to share information in a way that's often really terrific, but sometimes becomes a vector for spreading crazy conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. It's a very efficient way, if you're a conspiracy theorist, to get them out to the world. So I really want people to look at the book, understand the way coders think, and use that to help them understand the software world that they live in. Well, Clive, uh, we're coming to a close, and unfortunately we're coming to a close uh, of the program. Is there anything you'd like to add? You know, actually, I would say the, the last thing is, it sort of goes a little bit to what we talked about with learning to code. I think... You know, I learned a little bit of coding, mm-hmm. and it was intellectually fun. Like, I enjoyed doing it just because it was a great respite, a way to use my mind. So I would encourage anyone who's listening to this to go online and take a little online free course, mm-hmm. try it out, not with the idea that you're going to be a coder, but just to sort of experience some of the pleasures that we've talked about here. Well, Clive, thank you so much uh, for talking with us today, and I wish you the best in this uh, with your new book. Thanks so much. I had a great time talking to you. Thank you. Likewise. I've been talking with Clyde Thompson on his new book, Coders, The Making of a New Tribe and the Remaking of the World. It's truly fascinating read. I uh, want to remind our listeners that if you missed a regular broadcast, you can always listen to our interviews on our YouTube channel at Good Books Radio Strong and Cook. This is your host, David Inojosa, signing off, and I want to thank you all for listening. <laughs> <laughs>